Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lepka here with Akil Amar, who's somewhere other than where he usually is. Hi, Akil. Hey, Andy. I'm in the beautiful city of Big Shoulders, Chicago. Uh, yesterday, I just actually saw a wonderful comedy group, uh, Second City, which is the launching pad for people like John Belushi and Bill Murray and my dear friend Stephen Colbert. So I'm having fun. So greetings from the Midwest. And, you know, I mean, Chicago is also the city of the strange nicknames, you know, the city of the big shoulders, <laughs> the windy city, whatever. Anyway, um, and of course, today we're we're very lucky to have back by popular demand and by our demand, <laughs> um, the uh, the former dean of undergraduate admissions at Yale and many other things, which we described in our last podcast, uh, Jeff Prenzel. Welcome back, Jeff. Nice to be here, Andy. Thank you. And of course, if Jeff's back, you know what we're talking about. We're talking about the affirmative action cases, the Harvard and North Carolina cases. And, uh, and we're also talking about, you know, things related to that, college admissions, et cetera. Um, so let me just lay out the, uh, a couple of things for our audience about what we're going to be talking about today. You know, last time we talked about the majority opinion and various aspects of the functioning of, a, of college admissions through uh, the lens of, of Jeff's expertise. Um, but we didn't get to all of them. Today we're going to be talking about a lot of the consequences of the opinion, the peripheral areas or other areas of admissions that it may have implications for, either from a legal uh, or even a policy point of view. Um, because certainly this opinion is generating a lot of public pressure and putting a lot of forces on colleges as a whole and on the admissions programs specifically that may not be entirely you know, judicial um, or legislative in nature. Um, and so we're going to talk about them. So what does that mean? It means we're going to talk about things like legacy preferences, donor preferences, what about military academies, um, and, and things like that. Now, we had promised, or at least alluded to the, uh, in our previous episode, that we were going to get into an analysis of the dissents on a kind of a micro basis. Um, and we are going to do that, but we're not going to do that today because that doesn't utilize Jeff's expertise in its best way, and, uh, and we, we definitely want to, want to do that. But there will be plenty of law for you, uh, as always, because Akil's here, and we know he's not going to you know, pipe down for... Hold for, back. He's not going to hold back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Okay. I will affirmatively act. Okay, so um, let's start off, though, with, with a legal question that has some you know, implications for these other things. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll direct this question mostly at, a, at Akil, but Jeff can weigh in as well. How did this case get from being a case about discrimination against Asian Americans in favor of whites and wind up as a case that essentially eliminates race-based preferences in favor of blacks and Hispanics and others, um, which would seem to have, you know... A, at least not be directly on, on the issue, even if it, it's peripherally implicated. How did that case morph, from, in a sense, from A to B? It morphed from B to A back to B, or, you know, A to B to A. The litigants well, clear. <laughs> from the beginning, the plaintiffs had their eyes set on affirmative action. They wanted to kill affirmative action. They looked around and tried to find a case. 
and lawyers who have a, a cause, who have a mission, and there's nothing wrong with lawyers having a cause or a mission, but they want to pick maybe the best case, the one that has the best facts for them. Thurgood Marshall very famously did that when he was the lawyer for the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Persons. So he brought cases actually in a certain order because the proverbial law of the land when he started was Plessy versus Ferguson. And he wanted to undo that. And but he did. He brought the cases in a certain order with certain very sympathetic litigants and sympathetic facts. And he tried to build a bridge away from Plessy toward what he was imagining would be, you know, utopia of the Brown case that still wasn't yet called Brown. So he's doing this in the late 30s and, and the 40s and the early 50s, inspired by his mentor, Charles Hamilton Houston. And so the hard case is going to be elementary schools, because that's going to involve millions, tens of millions of people, parents with little kids at home, Many of the parents, and I'm going to use the word bigoted in a certain way, and sex interacted with race. They were especially concerned, white parents, about their white daughters being cheek by jowl, side by side in classrooms and cafeterias with not just blacks, but black boys. That was actually the third rail. That was going to be the hardest one. So Thurgood Marshall doesn't start with that because that's going to be hardest for the court. He starts actually with cases involving segregation in law schools because the justices understand law schools and understand, for example, that you know separate isn't really going to be equal when the white law school has the reputation, the history, that network, context. Yes, the, the money. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, they're going to understand law schools and that's easy and that doesn't get people's backs up so much. And then graduate schools. And then only then does Thurgood Marshall bring a case about secondary schools and elementary schools. So too, in the bus boycott cases, you want a poster child litigant. They picked Rosa Parks, because did Thurgood Marshall and the organization, because she actually was an utterly upright, virtuous person. They were other litigants who had some other issues in their background that, you know, uh, the Thurgood Marshall uh, thought might be distracting. So movement lawyers are different from, or uh, some lawyers, they, they, they just, they open to anyone, you have a problem, you go to them, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, they have clients and then, and they're trying to solve the problems of the clients. That's not a movement lawyer. A movement lawyer doesn't start with a client. She starts with a cause, a mission. She's actually looking for the client. The clients aren't coming to her. She's trying to find them and bring them in a certain order. The, the movement lawyers underlying this case wanted to get rid of affirmative action in general, and they did. They picked the Harvard case because the facts were particularly good in some way. Harvard is high profile. It's a home run because the whole idea of affirmative action, diversity style, comes out of a case called Bakke, one opinion by Lewis Powell that mentions the Harvard plan by name. So there were all sorts of, you know, Harvard is iconic. So there were all sorts of reasons why they wanted to pick Harvard. So that's my first point. Lawyers get to sometimes, you know, pick their cases and they did that. Second point, judges, especially on the Supreme Court, justices get to pick how they write an opinion. They can write it narrowly if they choose. They can write it broadly 
if they choose. Brown versus Board of Education could have been decided simply saying, on the facts of these seven consolidated cases before them, we find that none of these are really equal because of this fact about Topeka and that fact about, again, there were seven others. They could have done that. Instead, they said, we're using these seven cases to announce a broader principle. Separate but equal is inherently unequal in the context of higher education. Now, they limited that. They did not say separate is always unequal everywhere. That would have been even broader. They said again and again and again, we hold that this is a direct quote. In the field of higher education, we hold that the doctrine of of separate but equal has no place. Why did they limit it that way? Why did they make it broader than every uh, the seven schools? Because if they limited the seven schools, future litigants were going to have to show each time on the facts, it's not equal here, it's not equal here. That was going to involve a lot of burden on the Thurgood Marshalls of the world. Why did they, they? So they went broader than that. They said, in education, separate is basically per se never equal. That's what we now are in a position to, to say after having heard a lot of education cases. Why didn't they go broader than that and say not just segre- um, segregation education, but everywhere? I told you why. Because the biggest blowback was going to be on the interracial dating issue, um, especially white girls and black boys. If you had said race-conscious laws are unconstitutional everywhere, the Constitution is colorblind everywhere and not just in education, on that day, in 1954, the court would have been committing itself, using an education case, to the proposition that you can't actually have race-based rules in marriage. And they weren't willing to go there yet. As we've talked about a couple of times, they didn't go there until 1967, 13 years later, another opinion by the same justice, Chief Justice Earl Warren. And the opinion, as we've mentioned on a couple of episodes, was actually drafted, except for his last paragraph, by the great Ben O'Schmidt, the late great Ben O'Schmidt, recently departed. We're going to have a tribute episode in his honor. He's Yale College, Yale Law School. He later became president of Yale University. I double-checked he was the president when I got tenure. So um, bless you, Benno. Um, may your memory be a blessing to, to all of us. But he, as Earl Warren's law clerk, wrote the, the draft of Loving versus Virginia. The court wasn't ready in 1954 to do that. So a court can decide, you know, whether it wants to uh, decide things narrowly or broadly. One final point or analogy in Obergefell, there were actually at least three, because we've talked about how Obergefell is for same-sex marriage, kind of what Loving versus Virginia was um, for interracial marriage. What Loving was as to race, Obergefell was as to sex and sexual orientation. There are lots of similarities. In Loving, Benno's draft was just about equality. Earl Warren, according to Benno, basically didn't touch a comma. He he said, you've done it just as I want, except he added the final paragraph to the opinion, which was a different legal theory. This Virginia law prohibiting interracial marriage not only violated rules about racial equality, it also violated a fundamental right to marry. 
said, an unenumerated, perhaps fundamental right to marry, said Earl Warren, that's going to become the basis in part of, of Obergefell. So Warren is choosing to go more broadly than Benno's drafted. Why did Benno draft an early? Because he's just a law clerk. That was like above his pay grade to introduce a new unenumerated right. But Earl Warren's the chief justice. He can do what he wants. He had a choice about whether to write it as a just an equality case or an equality plus fundamental rights case. Now, fast forward to Obergefell. Obergefell could have been decided just as a fundamental right to marry case, or it could have been decided as a case about sex discrimination. If Patrick can marry Jane, why can't Patricia? Or could have been decided as a sexual orientation case. If straights can marry, why not gays equally? Or it could have been decided much more narrowly than that. It could have been decided simply as a full faith and credit case. Even if your state doesn't recognize same-sex marriage, if people from your state go to Niagara Falls, same-sex couple, get married and come back, don't you have an obligation to respect that same-sex marriage? Or are marriages going to just, as as the couple is driving down from Niagara Falls along the coast, you know, just like so many AM radio stations fading in and out, their marriage becomes valid or invalid as they're crossing, you know, the line from this state into that one. Why do I mention that in particular? Because I faulted the dissenters. Because if the dissenters were going to say that the litigants, the plaintiffs in Obergefell lose, they actually had to say, we reject all of your arguments. We reject your, because the majority didn't talk about full faith and credit. It didn't need to. It gave you, the plaintiffs, everything they wanted under equality and marriage rights. But if the dissenters were going to say, no, you you don't have a valid marriage, they had to reject the substantive due process, fundamental right to marry argument and the sex equality argument and the sexual orientation equality argument and the full faith and credit argument. And none of the dissenters actually did that. And I faulted them for that. But just to sum up, litigants have choices about which cases they're going to bring and which facts they think are particularly good. And judges and justices have choices about whether they're going to decide things narrowly or broadly, whether they're going to decide one issue, which suffices, or whether they're going to decide more than um, one issue. Okay, well, there's a lot there, and I I definitely want to bring Jeff in, but just to respond quickly to to, to a couple of things that you said there, Akil. Um, So there, there are those in the audience who may be listening and saying, wait a minute, I thought the cases are supposed to be decided as narrowly as possible. The court's supposed to do as little as possible. I mean, that's that's the, a philosophy of judicial um, restraint, you know, or something right. like that, isn't it? Um, so it's that's never not been a my philosophy. Right. It's never been the philosophy of my mentor, Owen Fiss, and we're going to have a, an episode in his honor. And the one thing I can also tell you is it's never been, well, it was not the philosophy of John Marshall in this little case called Marbury versus Madison, where he decides everything imaginable. At the end of the day, he says, oops, we have no jurisdiction. But before he tells you that, he's deciding 
eight other issues that actually there was a, a valid commission and it was signed and sealed and although it wasn't delivered, delivery isn't required, signing and sealing is sufficient and that once that commission issued, actually it couldn't be retracted and it was a vested legal right and mandamus is actually an appropriate remedy for the deprivation of a, of a commission and, and that the government wasn't immune, there wasn't sovereign immunity. He's deciding issue after issue after issue and then he's Oops, no jurisdiction. Okay, so John Marshall, judicial restraint can mean many different things. In another episode, Andy, I'll identify at least six things. I'm not 18, but at least six that judicial restraint can mean. And I think Bush versus Gore violated almost every one of those. But deciding things narrowly on their facts is one understanding it's very much associated with Alex Bickle of the, of the Yale Law School, who at the end of his life was actually a Sterling professor. I've never been a Bickelian. It's been revived in certain ways by our friend, the great Cass Sunstein, who was Matthew's mentor at the Harvard Law School. He wrote a whole book called One Case at a Time. He championed the idea of what he termed judicial minimalism. And truthfully, I'm not a big fan of that. And I think Cass might not be if the Warren court were still sitting. Then you'd want them to go big and bold. But Given that, you know, the current court is is not the Warren court, he wants them to go small and narrow. So judicial restraint can mean many things. I think it basically means follow the law, don't make things up. But if it's emphatically the duty and province of the judicial department to say what the law is, if the Supreme Court isn't merely resolving disputes between individual litigants, that's the job of trial courts and maybe courts of appeals. If it's proclaiming national law and especially constitutional law for all of us, I actually like it when they give us clear pr- uh, rules and principles so that Jeff can know what to do at Yale and other schools. So it's not just a Harvard specific case or North Carolina specific case. He's given, the court is properly discharging its function when it gives lawyers, litigants, the other branches, citizens, the world, it's a best sense of what the law really means. Um, if I could, uh, if I could summarize uh, that, probably uh, too cavalierly, um, what I gather you're saying is that from the beginning, justices are restrained until they're not, <laughs> or they're restrained by following law, but that's different than deciding cases narrowly on their facts. Yes. Um, cases, uh, facts are vehicles for broader propositions. You've taught philosophy. Okay, we are all all three of us are really into the Socratic dialogues. Socrates is looking for fights of a certain sort. He meets someone. He starts talking about cooking or pottery, but he actually uses, you know, something about cooking or pottery to make a broader point about his vision of ontology and epistemology and, you know, what we call platonic essences and all the rest. He's looking to show you the universal the general, in the particular, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, other philosophers aren't like that. They're much more maybe in a tradition of Burke and trying to think we should actually not try to generalize. We should be as narrow as possible. I believe judges can actually be genuinely restrained, even if they're in a Socratic tradition. They're using the facts to announce general sweeping propositions, but as long as they're truly legal propositions that are following 
what the Constitution really does say, I would say that's actually an admirable model of restraint because restraint can mean different things. And I never thought for the Supreme Court, it means narrowly sticking to the facts and going no broader than you have to. Brown went broader than it had to when it said all of it in all of education and didn't go as broad as it could have. It could have just said Plessy is overruled everywhere and always, even in the domain of transportation. But they didn't want to do that because that would have applied to marriage law and they weren't ready to decide that. And I think we have that question in this case, uh, Akil, still to be determined. How broad is this ruling mm-hmm. and how and, and, and what will be the legal consequences as it plays out in other domains? I think we're going to talk about that a little later in the program, including here's a narrow thing that they, they did. They, they used it as a case to go to say more, Andy, than you can't discriminate against Asian-Americans, which I think truthfully, Harvard was on the facts it was harder to get in as an Asian-American than as a white. OK. But if they decided it narrowly that way, first of all, the the litigants wanted to debate the broader issue, especially the plaintiffs. Second, that would have been a Harvard-specific case, but there were two cases, and I'm not sure that North Carolina's facts were the same way. They wanted to write one opinion in the two cases, and part of the reason they did is that Justice Jackson, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, had to recuse herself in the Harvard case because she's a Harvard overseer, uh, a trustee. And if if they were just going to limit it to Harvard's facts about Asian Americans, that was going to need going to require a separate opinion for North Carolina. That was another consideration that I think um, may have influenced them. So they went bigger than they had to. They could have just said Harvard is discriminating against an historic underdog, sort of, you know, Asian American or something, and we don't need to reach anything broader. But they didn't do that because maybe the North Carolina case obliged them to go further. But, but Andy, they still didn't go as big as they could have. For example, they carefully bracketed the issue of military academies, in part because they thought that might raise different issues, and we might talk about that. So just as Brown went bigger than it had to, but not as big as it could have, it could have gone beyond education, this one went bigger than it had to. It wasn't just about um, Harvard and Asian Americans, but not as big as it could have. It could have actually said military academies can't do a certain kind of affirmative action. And what they instead said is, Military academies might be different for various reasons. Our opinion doesn't apply to that. And that's almost conceptually, analytically, almost any case you ever give me, I can show you, here's a conceivable opinion that would have been narrower. Oh, and here's a conceivable opinion that would have been broader. So the justices have to decide, in effect, how much they want to decide. Well, actually... um you know, it's interesting what you say about the military academy thing, and I do want to talk about this, um, because um, Chief Justice Roberts um, says in a footnote, um, I'll read you the whole footnote, but the but first I want to draw, draw attention to one thing that he says in there. He says, no military academy is a party to these cases. Okay, as part of his reason for not deciding about military academies and of course and then i think it's justice jackson really rakes him over the coals about that because you know she says well, well okay they're not a party but what about all the other people that aren't a party to this case what about all the the blacks that aren't a party to this case or whatever and 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 you're making all kinds of generalizations you know so how how is that the point 
you know, here. So, and that's always true, Andy. And since this is America's constitution, I often try to connect it back to us. Lower court decisions, as I said, are often about the parties. The job of a district judge, a trial judge, is to resolve the dispute between the parties, not to set the law for the nation. This is why I'm skeptical about nationwide injunctions. The job of a court of appeals is to make sure that the trial court got it right as to the litigants. That's why it's appeal as of right. And that's actually the court of last resort for an individual litigant is the court of appeals. And courts of appeals also don't define law for the nation. The Supreme Court has a different function. It's Docket is discretionary. So not only does it choose how broadly or narrowly to decide the case, it chooses what cases it's going to hear. Trial courts don't. Courts of appeals don't. And the role, this is now a Marcus Constitution, of amici is particularly different. I don't write amicus briefs typically for trial court cases or even for court of appeals cases. How many amici were in the Moore versus Harper case? I think over 70 Mm -hmm. from lots of think tanks and and broader groups. So the Supreme Court, and this is to Justice Jackson's point, even if it's not hearing from every conceivable litigant, the litigants, the parties are A and B, it is, in fact, often hearing from a broader array of legal experts because we legal experts understand that we're going to be affected by this ruling, you know, even if our institution is not a nominal party to the case. So I want to come back to something Jeff Jeff said um, a moment ago. He said, and I, and I, I think he's absolutely right on this, that um, part of the question here is, well, okay, the court went broader than the facts of the case. Just how broad did they go? You know, and that's something that, that uh, so, you know, someone that is not necessarily a lawyer but is affected by the case, like a dean of admissions, for example, not all deans of admissions are lawyers, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to figure out, right? Or the, or the administration, I mean, presumably they're advised by general counsel, whatever. But the point is that, that people have to figure out what is the significance of the court going, going bigger, um, and so perhaps the court has a, a duty to make it clear, you know, what they're what they're limiting and what they're not limiting. I was just going to mention uh, one example of this, which I think we are going to talk about a little later, which is on the day of the decision, the Missouri attorney general issued a ban on any race based scholarship money uh, being dispersed or distributed uh, by public institutions in Missouri on the basis of the Supreme Court decision, which said nothing about scholarship funding or financial aid. That ban by the Missouri Attorney General, which has been followed in a few other states so far, others are considering it, extends what the court had to say about race-conscious policies in education uh, far past the area of simple uh, admissions. So let's take another Warren Court Example, a famous one. I talked about Brown. I talked about Loving versus Virginia. Let's take Miranda. The formal issue in Miranda was whether Ernesto Miranda had Fifth Amendment rights were violated, whether he had been, in effect, compelled to be a witness against himself in a criminal case. Now, from a narrow point of view, he's not a 
witness taking the stand, that the criminal case hasn't really begun, the jury hasn't been summoned, there's no courtroom, we're talking about a police station, they're reading the Fifth Amendment rather broadly. Its principles, for various reasons we've talked about in other episodes, need to apply outside the courtroom in order to protect a narrow courtroom right. And Andy, we had a whole um, episode or maybe even a couple on that. But now here's my second point. They could have um, simply said, on the facts of this case, his will was overborne, he was compelled. And until Miranda, the court had actually, in a whole series of cases, looked at the specific facts. Well, this person, first time in the criminal justice system, they're 17 years old, um, they're very suggestible, they were interrogated for seven hours they weren't offered coffee and, and donuts and sandwiches. We think their will was overborne because they tried to resist and tried to resist and, and, and then eventually they broke down. Whereas in this case, it was only two hours before the guy coughed up the confession. He was a hardened criminal who had you know, been through the criminal justice system many times before. It wasn't his first rodeo. He kind of knew his rights. And and they gave him coffee and and sandwiches. But he, you know, but he told them a story and, and he didn't have to. And he kind of knew that he didn't have to because he had gone through the system previously. That's the world before Miranda, all the facts and circumstances. And the police officers of the world and thousands of police departments are saying, you've given us 30 cases, 30 different fact patterns. But, you know, it's still kind of hard for us to figure out, you know, how that applies to us. OK, we've just got you've given us 30 narrow fact based rulings. Enter Miranda. Miranda is very different. It's very sweeping. It just comes up with a per se rule, a safe harbor saying, you know, unless you've got some other special safeguards in place, here's what you need to do. You need to actually tell every person, whether they're a hardened criminal, you know, or first timer, whether it's a three hour interrogation or a 12 hour, whether you give them coffee and sandwiches or not. Every person needs to be told that they have a, a right to an attorney present. And if they, you know, and, and if they can't afford one, one will be appointed for them, that they have a right to remain silent. And if they give up that right, anything they say can and will be used against me. You know, that's the card. Jack Webb made that famous on Dragnet. Okay. And so ordinary Americans know that rule because of television, but the court came up with, you could say a kind of a broad rule, a per se rule, in part to give guidance to all sorts of other institutions. Now, here it would be admissions officers everywhere. There are lots of schools or maybe attorneys general because it's not just actually admissions programs. There are scholarship programs and other things. They came up with more of a bright line rule. They pushed hard in the direction of colorblindness rather than just saying, oh, here, Harvard or North Carolina went too far. More like the world before Miranda. So is this limited to admissions or isn't it? And is it limited? Okay, so so that's one question that I think. I'm, right. Is, is Brown limited to education? Brown said education, education, education. The next year, the court in per curia cases without oral argument, without a briefing on the merits, just summary per curiam said, okay, you can't have segregation in the beaches. But Brown said education, 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 and it said public beaches. You can't have segregation in public golf courses. But Brown said education. 
And then the final one, this is 1955, a case called uh, Browder, uh, Gales versus Browder, I believe, said, oh, you can't have segregation in buses. And this is going to lead to, you know, like Montgomery, and this is the Montgomery bus boycott stuff was going on. Buses, oh my God, that's the domain of transportation. That's the domain of Plessy versus Ferguson was about a railroad. The court went out of its way to not formally overrule Plessy. It actually said explicitly, Brown did, oh, that was a transportation case. We hold that in the domain of public education. And yet immediately afterwards, they're saying, oh, it applies to beaches, public beaches. Oh, it applies to public golf courses. Oh, it applies to public buses. But there was a one domain that they didn't really apply it to until 1967. That was the domain of marriage law. That was Loving versus Virginia. Okay, well, so now, you know, Jeff is the you know, was the dean of admission. So how do you react to this kind of a, of a, of an opinion? Is there a tendency to overread it under, you know, what's, what's your general approach as a, uh, a university officer to something like this, Jeff? It's what you're asking me, uh, Andy, really, what do I think institutions will do? That is, uh, where I think the predominantly white institutions that constitute the hundred most selective colleges and universities what's going to be their response to this is that the question you're asking well i i do want to ask that but i think there are two questions within that one is what won't they do in other words mm-hmm. what will they stay away from doing mm-hmm. and the other is what will they affirmatively do so so for example um you know in what won't they do this brings us into the realm possibly of legacy admissions mm-hmm. will they curtail things like other forms of preferences, um, like legacy, like for athletics, especially, let's say, you know, sort of fringe sport, athletic sports, which some people say are a proxy for, uh, you know, for a white preference or a rich preference or a class preference or something like that. Um, or, and then we also have donor admission. So these, these may be separate categories, but um, they're all in the category of things that they might feel that they're restricted from engaging in their past policies as a result of this. So let's start with with that general class. Do you think that universities as a legal matter, so again, we have to sort of break this down. There's one, there's sort of a policy idea. like, Oh, how can you do this if you don't do this? That's not fair, you know, or something like that. That's, you know, kind of a policy approach. Um, And then there's a legal approach. So, you know, your interpretation, and again, we, you could say, well, we have to ask Akil about the legal approach. But really what I'm saying is, you know, admissions officers have to have to take a legal approach informed by general counsel or whatever. Um, so what would the opinion stop you from doing because you feel the court has said you can't do it? Um, or what would you stop not no longer do or curtail because you feel that the public or maybe your sense of what's right or maybe in light of the fact that we can't do racial. So those, that's a lot, but why don't you address no, those so, questions? So I think that that's the proper way to ask the question, actually. And um, uh, Akia would have to comment on the legal issues. Uh, I'll make my amateur uh, comment on that, which is let's take legacy admissions uh, or athletic admissions. They are not formally race conscious uh, practices, right? I think uh, uh, legacies, uh, the facts that I've, or the factoids I've seen tossed around in the press are that something like 70% of of legacies uh, at the most selective colleges are white. 
uh, versus uh, 50 or 55 percent otherwise. And therefore, this shows uh, a differential outcome for legacy admissions. But of course, as uh, as Akio was discussing in the last podcast, it's not formally race conscious. It might have correlative differential outcomes for different races, but it's hard for me to see how that would uh, come under the current Supreme Court decision, which is focused on race conscious practices, athletics, very similar. So let me let me put the legal question aside and ask Akil in a moment to address that. On the public opinion side of this, the legacy slash donor issue uh, has been active for years. There's always been a suspicion that uh, elite inst- institutions are reproducing themselves. Uh, historically, in particular for private institutions, uh, these institutions built their uh, capabilities, which are, uh, if you take, I don't know, the top 20 universities in the country, they constitute 20 of the top 30 universities in the world. They were all built by private donations, um, and most of those donations came from their alumni. Uh, historically speaking, legacy admissions peaked. Uh, the, these are public numbers, by the way. You can find them in lots of places at, uh, at Yale and I think at, at, at other institutions in the IVs or the Ivy Plus group. Legacy admissions peaked uh, in the 40s, uh, at which point about 30 percent of the undergraduates at Yale were the uh, offspring of, uh, of of a Yale parent. And, and in those days, it was a Yale father, right? Because uh, mm-hmm. Yale was a men's only institution. Um, from that high point, um, the preference steadily d- diminished until it hit something like about 14 or 15% in the early 70s, rose briefly back to about 18% and has fallen steadily to its current percentage, which is about 12% of the undergraduates at Yale. Again, public figures uh, that are published by the admissions office are the uh, son or daughter of a Yale mother or father. So the legacy preference is not what it once was. Any investigation into legacies would quickly reveal what I saw when I took the job. So here's a personal uh, uh, anecdote that that might be of some interest here Um, uh, with regard to legacy admissions in particular. I came to Yale from Kentucky. I was the first person in my family to earn a college degree, much less go uh, out of state, much less go to an Ivy League college. I became dean of admissions after eight years being the executive director of the Association of Yale Alumni. I was the alumni guy on campus. And when I was appointed, uh, there was delight in some quarters uh, because uh, it was thought that perhaps this was a gesture that Yale was going to uh, honor and restore some of the traditional preference that was given to legacy students. And then uh, there was consternation in other quarters that uh, the fox was being sent to guard the hen house. And, uh, you know, this is a, this, this would be a terrible thing if Yale is signaling that, you know, uh, that, that alumni children are going to be further advantaged. When I actually got there and given my own background, uh, I was no particular friend of the of the alumni preference. 
And what I discovered when I got there is what I just said, which it, it had vastly diminished over time. And uh, anyone who takes a peek behind the curtains at the legacy applicant pool uh, knows that because of uh, whether it's inherited talent or privilege and an exceptional circumstance, legacies are going to be an exceptionally well-prepared and highly talented group. They're going to sit at the top of the admissions pool. What I discovered when I got there was that the legacy preference was, in fact, quite modest. And the legacy applicant pool uh, was extraordinarily uh, talented and qualified. Um, Could you further diminish it? Yes, perhaps by a few percentage points. Who would replace that two or three percent that perhaps got tipped over uh, into a class from among the most extremely high qualified portion of the applicant pool? What's going to replace those are some other highly uh, prepared highly talented students who are drawn from most probably the white and Asian students that would predominate in the admissions pool. Why is Um, it that those would be the ones that would replace them? Pardon? Why why do you say that? Why is that necessarily the people that would replace them? Well, because we're going to see a diminishment in black and Hispanic and native American uh, uh, candidates who are accepted A few will still come in with that group, but you're not going to change the makeup of a Yale freshman class. That is the demographic, racial and socioeconomic makeup of a Yale freshman class by anything on the margin, uh, by diminishing legacy applicants by two or three percentage points. Uh, This this entire Um, hysteria over legacy admissions, I think, is a public reaction uh, to the uh, to the Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court has attacked affirmative action. Well, these places are also places of privilege and they should be spanked for that, too. Well, that's fine. I get it. Uh, but I don't think it's going to have much effect on social mobility in the United States of America. And it's certainly not going to restore the underrepresented minority numbers that are being lost because of the Supreme Court decision. Let me just say, I know Akil wants to step in, but but um, if you look at Yale, um, so who are legacies? You know, if you mostly are looking at, you, might, you said Yale parent. Okay, mm-hmm. so... Certainly, you know, in the near future, and I would say now as well, the makeup of of the previous generation of Yale students, the people who are now the Yale parents are, so for example, my son is a Yale parent. Now I'm a grandfather, twice over. And so that, that may, as is his wife. So that, that makeup is one which, uh, you know, by percentage is actually favorable you know, demographically to the goals of affirmative action. In other words, Yale is very diverse and has been, you know, for some time. So the yes. alumni themselves and, that will and, be the parents. And, and, and in are, fact, when I became dean, it was of great interest to Yale's black alumni whether Yale was putting on offer the same legacy preference um, that white Yaleys had enjoyed for many years, even though it was vastly diminished over what it once was. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did an investigation. We, we were able to assure, to reassure the black alumni that their citizenship 
and their full stake and their and their stakeholder in the institution was being honored equally with white alumni. The vast majority of both uh, black legacies and white legacies are turned away from the institution. But uh, what preference still remains was there as well. And as you say, the demographics have changed. So um, I just don't see that the elimination of the legacy preference is going to change the demographics of the student body uh, Mm -hmm. by very much. Although I understand the bile that, uh, that that is involved and also the public sense that this is a much bigger factor than it actually is in the admissions process in these institutions today uh, as distinct from the historical past. Akil, you wanted to comment? Yeah, let, let me just identify about three or four, I think, particularly interesting tidbits in what Jeff has been sharing. One thing that he just mentioned in passing is that maybe of the world's 30 greatest universities by sort of reputation and achievement in in terms of advancing the frontiers of human knowledge. He said, just kind of casually and in passing, 20 of the 30 are American universities. America actually punches way above its weight in higher education. I think it's part of America's soft power in the world, that people from all around the world come to the United States for higher education. Now, this is personal because I'm born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, because my parents meet at a great American university. It happens to be a public university, University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Or we could take Barack Obama, Okay, and these are diversity stories, by the way. You know, two Indians, my parents, meeting in America at a university. Let's take Barack Obama, since I mentioned Loving versus Virginia. You know, a black man and a white woman, what was freaking everyone out, you know, in 1954, at least a lot of white parents of white girls. I'm worried about black boys. Barack Obama is born in Hawaii because his father from Africa from Kenya comes for American higher education and meets um, his his mother. One point that Jeff said, which is really interesting, um, American universities are preeminent in the, in the world. We are not two thirds of the GDP of the world, probably. When you you know when you add in you know Europe and 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 China, others, we're definitely not two thirds of. We're the, not even the, half the because China's the GDP world. is bigger than ours, so we can't we can't be half. One thing that he said, American higher education is pretty impressive in the world. Here's a second thing that he said. They're very wealthy. Um, And that might not be unconnected. And a third thing. It's totally connected. Of course it's connected. Yeah. It's the greatest assemblage of resources devoted to the advancement of Yes. And then and, and, and I say to all the donors out there, thank you. OK, you pay my salary and I get that. OK. But he said another thing. He, he said that these resources are created by, in general, private, private giving, that many of these great universities, not all of them, are private universities, not the University of Michigan. I'm right. born there, not the right. University of California, which gave, gave rise to the, the UC Davis case that was Bakke. Um, I grew up in the shadow of University of California, Berkeley, Walnut Creek. I'm a huge fan of these great public university systems like University of Michigan, like University 
of California. A big shout out to our friend Jim Ryan, president of, of UVA. So there are great public universities in America, but there are also great private universities funded by private donations. And here, you know, I just want to remind folks, this is one of the things that Tocqueville notices way back that America is a, a place where there's um, actually there are three main sectors in America. There's a governmental sector, there's a for-profit sector, and there's a non-governmental organization, NGO, sort of private charity sector. Americans actually give more to private charities by far than any other people in the world, to churches, to, to schools, to fraternal organizations, to clubs. And some of our great private schools are religious schools. You know, the the Notre Dames of of the world, the uh, Georgetowns, the Yeshivas, the BYUs. there, There are many. I'm just identifying some really interesting features of American exceptionalism, if you will. Since we also were talking not just about, and here's the final point, alumni preferences, but also donor preferences. And maybe Andy in a future episode will have someone to talk about donors and alums are donors and donors are alums. Those aren't identical groups. There's a, there's a big overlap in the Venn diagrams. Here's what I kind of heard Jeff to say. And if I misinterpreted him, you know, let him jump. that if you got rid of legacy preference altogether, and by the way, I'm not, that that big a fan of legacy preference. So Andy, you and I might have different views about that. We can talk about that in in, in future episodes. So our audience shouldn't think that I think this is the hill that I want to die on because it's not at all. In fact, on, on the contrary. But Jeff said, whether you get rid of it or you keep it may not matter nearly so much as people think. Here's one way of saying it, because he's saying even without legacy preference, these kids are really impressive, you know, in their backgrounds, in their um, achievements, in, um, in their grades and scores and extracurriculars and all that. And one way of putting his point is if you got rid of legacy admissions at Yale, here's what you might have. You'd have more Princeton kids at Yale and Yale kids at Princeton. And maybe, you know, that's going to be, you know, the result in, in part on the substitution effect that, that he's identifying. Yeah, and right. I think that's, yeah, that's a great point. I just think that the substitution effect people aren't taking into account, that there's this idea that somehow it's the legacy preference that is blocking the diversity of the campuses. There's been a big study released just this last week. I haven't had time to dig into it. It's made the rounds of all the newspapers on uh, on wealth, privilege, legacies, and so forth. I think as a public lightning rod, it's going to get a lot of attention. I think some, some additional schools uh, will probably uh, say that they're eliminating it. I think its effect in terms of the consequence for the nation, consequences for social mobility, and consequences especially for the underrepresented minorities that are going to be affected by the Supreme Court decision is going to be really quite minimal. Jeff, I don't want to put you on the spot here, and you might not have all the facts and figures, but here's what I thought I knew. Caltech and MIT have no legacy preference. Um, you were talking about Ivy Plus or something. What are there? Is that true? Um, and I know um, other schools are moving toward that, the Amherst of, of, of the world, um, and maybe Williams or something. Wesleyan but, uh, eliminated legacy preferences this past week, I believe. 
Who, who did? Wesleyan, the president of Wesleyan. Okay. Got up, made um, but one question I have is about um, the, the other demographics, the racial demographics in particular, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, whites at schools like Caltech and MIT. Am I right that they don't have, um, they haven't had, at least in recent years, legacy preference? And, and what do those demographics look like? You are correct. And you couldn't have picked two examples at more extreme ends of the scale. MIT has one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, level of racial and uh, socioeconomic diversity of the top, uh, you know, whatever you want to say, 12, 12 universities in the country. Caltech is at the opposite end of that. I don't know about socioeconomic diversity at Caltech, but their racial diversity is very, very small. That's because I think other factors in both of those cases have determined the racial and social and economic status of those student populations, not legacy uh, preference or lack thereof. Very interesting. Interesting. Now, and you said it couldn't be more different. I'm assuming you're talking especially about blacks and Hispanics, but what about blacks, Hispanics and native Americans? Okay. But what about Asians? My, again, my sense is that they both have a fairly high percentage of Asian Americans students. They do have a high percentage of, of, uh, of Asian Americans. Okay. Well, this is very interesting. Now you mentioned, they both do. You mentioned donor preference. When we talk about donor preference, I think we're talking more about private institutions than we are about public institutions. Is that right? There are schools like the University of Michigan and the University of Virginia that are public schools that are increasingly trying to move toward more of a private model of funding. They're getting less support from their legislatures as a percentage of, of, of budget than in previous generations. And they're looking to make that up by getting a higher percentage from their alumni base, in particular donors in general, but especially alums. And this is also connected to questions about how high a percentage of instators are they going to actually have as students, how much of a preference are they going to uh, admissions preference? Are they going to give to instators? Or how much of a of a tuition right. benefit are they going to give? I think from the point of view of what we're thinking about today, we should think about private institutions here because public institutions may have greater constraints, uh, and to the degree that they would be allowed to offer, you know, preference to donors and admission or something like that, by virtue of being public institutions. But let's just think about, so rather than complicate it with that, let's just think about private institutions here. Um, so, all right, um, one could argue that a, a private institution, you know, has a certain motivation, uh, kind of a self-interested motivation in, in offering an admission preference, if not a quid pro quo for tax reasons and, you know, some other things that we can talk about. But... Um, you know, if someone wants to give a billion dollars to Johns Hopkins, Mike Bloomberg, you know, and his son might get a preference or daughter in admissions, that seems a completely rational calculation for the institution to make. And as a private institution, they probably have the right to do that. Um, so uh, so that that's one thing. The second thing is that, you know, you, you alluded, Jeff, to a study that came out this week um, that was in the papers about, um, I know it was on the front page of the Times, about, you know, the, uh, 
you know, the, the very, very wealthiest having a big advantage in admissions. Um, so that's a complicated issue. It's not quite the same as donor preferences. Um, right. And, but uh, the one thing I would say about that study was the numbers were so tiny in terms of the number of people that actually got that advantage that it goes to your point earlier about, is this actually going to make any difference? I mean, it's, it's a, it, maybe it's a question of equity. To me, it's more a matter of, of punching somebody in the face, you know, and it's, it's like, you know, peak, you know, in, in retaliation for the perceived affront of the affirmative action decision. Um, and maybe a, a notion, it's sort of like Andy, when people, people Andy, want to cut Andy, congressmen's yes. salaries or something like that. That's essentially my take on it, and I want to be uh, fair about it. I'm uh, I'm no um, champion of legacy preferences uh, or donor preferences. Um, I think what draws the public attention is the notion, uh, which we're seeing go way outside of education, that the systems are rigged, that that it's a rigged game. Um, and that the uh, rich, wealthy, and best connected are controlling that game uh, to their vast advantage. I would only point out this. Uh, you know, first of all, I've already said, in terms of social mobility and uh, racial diversity, uh, I think that the legacy preference is way overblown as a factor. Uh, I think getting rid of it uh, would have a very negligible effect on the things that people are or oriented toward being concerned about most. But this notion that the system is rigged is a big public issue, and I recognize it. I understand uh, that that's the case. What I will say is the donors are a subset of the alumni, by and large. Mm -hmm. uh, most contributions to these institutions come from uh, alumni, not all. Um, and there's foundations, there's other things. But but the biggest contributors are alumni. And by definition, therefore, they are a subset of the 12 percent, um, uh, you know, legacy group that's represented on campus. Um, uh, and I would say a significantly smaller subset of that of that group. So, look, the attack on legacy and donor privilege I understand where it comes from. I also understand uh, that it comes in part as a reaction to the Supreme Court taking a two by four to affirmative action for underrepresented groups. And it'll play itself out however it plays itself out. I think legally speaking, it's going to be hard to attack it on racial grounds, simply because uh, these are not formally race conscious programs. If they go away, uh, do I actually think the institutions would vastly suffer? Honestly, no. Do I think it will change any of the important facts about American higher education and the demography of student enrollments? No, I do not. That's as much as I can say about this. Well, you made a very so, important point there. You said, um, and I know Akil wants to jump in, you, you said that um, it's not formally race conscious and therefore it's allowed. Well, that's the question, right? Um, is that the standard? Uh, so, right. and, and that, that comes down to how we read the opinion. Uh, yes. In part. And I think this is, this is critically important, uh, uh, Andy, because I think, you know, there's a, there's going to be another test case for Harvard. Harvard uh, being the iconic institution has drawn the lawsuit attacking uh, legacy and donor privilege. We'll see how it pans out. If 
the Supreme Court decision is extended to that. And I'd like Akil's comment here. Because it has a differential outcome, even though it's an unintended consequence and not based on a race-conscious classification, it seems to me that that would be a a much broader application of the Supreme Court's ruling. Uh, and uh, uh, Akil, am I wrong there? Well, before yeah, he answers, before he answers, let's just you know just lay out the landscape here. You said that Harvard has a lawsuit against it. Actually, it's not a lawsuit; it's an action brought with the Department of well, Education's well, well, Office of Civil Rights. Right, right. So that's what I was going to get to. It may be both, actually. Um, mm. That um, I, I think there 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 is a suit, but I think that separately um, there's been a complaint, and the Biden administration this week announced that they are going to conduct that the, the, the civil rights department or civil rights, yeah. uh, I forget the exact right. terminology, um, right. you know, is well, going to a violation an, of title six. Right, it's going rights. to conduct an, well, or, or other things. It's going to conduct an investigation <clears throat> into this. And now, of course, it's interesting reading about it because as you read about it, you, you read things like, well, of course, legacy admissions are a mechanism for, uh, you know, con- for continuing, you know, white uh, dominance, you know, and this sort of thing. And as we were talking about before, you know, maybe not, you know, um, and and uh, so that's one factor. And another factor is, I think, perhaps the bigger question, which is um, if it's not race conscious, if you know, here the question is race conscious, so perhaps it might have a race effect, but if the intent is not to accomplish that, um, does that matter? Or if, if the intent is to accomplish a, some sort of race sorting, but the means that are, that are employed are not race conscious, um, then what, you know, where does that place it? So those are some of the questions. So Akil, would you like to, to weigh in on all these from a legal point of view? Yes, thank you. In the 303 episode, I made a very big point of one of the most basic features of American constitutional law, the state action doctrine, that um, I have certain equality rights as a person, as a citizen against the government, but not against my fellow citizens horizontally. The government can't treat me worse because I'm Christian, uh, because I'm Asian American because of my sexual orientation. But private individuals are allowed to treat me differently. They're allowed to choose to go out with me on a date because I'm male, because I'm brown, because I'm Christian. This is central to freedom, the ability to discriminate if you're a private person, the ability, the right even, as we talked about in a couple of episodes, to be a bigot if you want to say I'm only going to date co-religionists or people in my ethnic group, my language group. Okay, big fact: state action doctrine. Our rights are against the government, um, not against individuals, and we can't have equal rights against all individuals because if we did, since we're individuals ourselves, we have rights against us that would be totalitarian, that would take away our basic human freedom to define our lives in certain ways, whom we choose to be our roommates, to, to share our house with, to, to be um, intimate with in, in, in other ways, share our lives with. Now, alongside that basic big feature of American constitutional law, which we call the state action doctrine, 
there is something that's somewhat similar. And it's the distinction in equal protection law between disparate treatment, color consciousness, race consciousness, treating people differently, explicitly, formally, openly because of their race and disparate effect. That, that a, a policy that is formally race neutral, but that has disproportionate effects on different groups. The key case here is the landmark case of Washington versus Davis it's in the mid 70s. And it stands for the proposition that generally speaking, disparate effect does not violate the Constitution. Okay. Unless the government is adopting a certain rule because of rather than in spite of its racially disparate effect. And, and, and according to current doctrine, um, that disparate effect that the government is achieving and purposefully so through a race conscious thing is actually landing particularly hard on historically powerless groups. Okay. There's an asymmetry in this doctrine. I'll come back to that in just a minute, but to repeat, in general, the, the, this, this is Hornbook Law 101 that the government can't ordinarily formally um, discriminate against someone because, for example, they're black. The question is, is the same thing true if they're discriminating in your favor because you're black? That's the affirmative action debate. But of course they can't discriminate against you because you're black. The government can't. A private person can uh, unless there's some law that operates. And some laws actually can't even apply to private persons in the marriage domain. Loving versus Virginia. The government can't say a black and a white can't get married, but a white person can say, I only want to marry another white person, you see. Okay, so um, that's the state action doctrine. The disparate impact, disparate treatment rule is when it comes to the government, it ordinarily can't actually, surely can't discriminate against black people formally, but it can have and does have and always has had all sorts of policies that land with particular unfortunate and disproportionate effect on, let's say, African-Americans, but weren't designed for that purpose and are fully constitutional. That's Washington versus Davis. So the two ways government typically is seen as violating the Constitution. That's just for now focus on discrimination against historically underrepresented groups and not the affirmative action counterparts is if they formally the government formally mistreats someone because they're black or if it's race neutral rule, but it was adopted because of its special disparate and unfortunate impact on blacks. That's Hornbook Law today. And the reason that's so important, Andy, here's now the kicker. And this is now going to invoke the dissents in the admissions case by Justice Jackson, Justice Myers, our society is so racially affected in, in every conceivable way. This is one of the things Jeff said in our previous episode that I'm willing to actually say literally, literally, and not using it the way people use it today, which means it's opposite, like figuratively. Every single law that I know of has a racially disparate effect, especially when we understand that there are more than two races or, or, or two religions. Mm. Okay, so pick any law in America, howsoever tame it is. We have a mortgage deduction rule in America. It's a basic fact of you know a lot. The home ownership in America is is based in part on the fact that you know at least for certain purposes you can deduct your mortgage. 
I promise you, Andy, that has a racially disparate effect because they're different home ownership numbers for different racial groups. So Justice Jackson spends a lot of time in in the dissent going through this. And so she goes like sort of sector by sector and, and makes this point over and over. And housing is an area like that that she says right. again. So you're right. But, 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 but let me just pick, you know, something else since, um, you know, Andy, you and I often, especially offline, you know, talk about Jewishness and, 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 and then you've invoked your rabbi and all the rest. I know these are not actually um, mutually exclusive categories, but let's just take Hispanics on the one side and Jews on the other. You can be an Hispanic Jew. I understand they're, they're, these are different. I'm talking about an ethnic group and a religious group. Okay. American Jewry is the oldest demographic group among you know many of the traditional groupings. I, I think the median age is in the 40s or 50s. Hispanics are among the youngest demographic group, median ages in uh, mid-teens, 15 or something like that. Now, I promise you, age correlates with everything. Um, especially in a, a world after the New Deal, where we have actually all sorts of social support for for elderly folks. So, you know, if you've had a lot of years to earn and to accumulate, net net, you're going to be wealthier than if you're a 15 year old kid. Okay, so and wealth correlates with everything. So, I know of not a single law that actually, if we did all the different demographic groups, all the religious groups, and there, there, there are many, they're not just two or three, and all the, the ethnic and racial groups, and sex for that matter too, I, I don't think I could come up with a single law as to which there was no appreciable demographic difference for any, you know, across any of those groupings. Couldn't think of one today. So if we didn't have Washington versus Davis, if disparate impact were itself unconstitutional or even presumptively unconstitutional, every single thing in the world would be unconstitutional. And that's one of the points made, one of the key points made by Justice Byron White in this, I think it's 1975, a case, um, could be 76, Washington versus Davis. By the by, he's a Yale Law School graduate, is Byron White. Oh, and by the by, um, his grandson was one of my students. I have no idea, undergrad, whether there was a legacy. Oh, and by the by, his son-in-law, Pablo Lippi, was my uh, Yale College classmate. So, you know, it's a complicated and interesting um, and Yale-centric world in certain ways. Okay, so let's, let's, you know, continue this table that we're creating. So you've got public action um, that's directly uh, determined by race, that the decision is made on the basis of race. And, you know, to the degree that that's allowed or not allowed. And then you have public action that has disparate uh, impact, but that doesn't have intent. And then you have public action that has disparate impact and does have intent. Now, what about private action? Um, Generally not covered by the Constitution. Now, what about private action in the context of Title VI? Is that, is that well, that's a statute, and right. so that's different, and it could be changed tomorrow. But it hasn't My own been. view is, since Jeff and I have talked about, in particular, America's extraordinary tradition of private um, institutions, and I talked about Tocqueville and other things. Private institutions have done particularly well. Of the nine oldest schools in America, the nine schools that were basically uh, universities and colleges in place at the time of the American Constitution— um, seven of them, and these are the seven public ones. So I'm not counting Rutgers, which used to be called uh, Queens College 
and William and Mary. There are nine schools in America at the time of the Constitution. The seven oldest Ivies, everything except Cornell, and Rutgers and William and Mary. Those are the nine schools basically in America, plus or minus. We could quibble about this one or that one, some other ones. But those are the nine big ones when the Constitution is adopted. Seven of those nine, Andy, the seven private ones, continue to be seven of the top 15, according to U.S. news rankings or Forbes or, or other ones. So this, these, these private universities have been very powerful institutions in America. And there's a famous Supreme Court case called the Dartmouth College case. It's the John Marshall case saying private schools are allowed to, you know, have their own um, uh, uh, private systems in all sorts of ways. So um, my own view is you're getting tax deduction, you're a charity, we can have, um, maybe you're getting even government money, so we can regulate you in certain ways. I think if you're a charity, you should not be allowed to discriminate against historically underrepresented groups. Uh, you, you have a private right to, but then you, you shouldn't get a char- a charitable status, um, 501c3 status, and, and have people who give donations to you being able to deduct that from their taxes and all the rest. So, so if you're a true charity, you should not be for whites only. Okay, But I do believe you could be a true charity today and say, given America's history of exclusion and, and and slavery and segregation. We've talked about segregation today with Brown versus Board of Education and other things. I think charities should be allowed today to do more affirmative action maybe than government should be allowed to do because maybe we have stricter rules about the government. That would require a change in Title VI. It could be done tomorrow by statute. A statute could say private institutions can't discriminate against, for example, blacks and Hispanics, but can have affirmative action in their favor. Maybe government shouldn't do this, but we should allow our great private institutions and our great philanthropists to try to to help us become a more even and equal society and make up into the past. But but aren't the, the, the big private institutions in education, Akio, um, treated as agents of the government because they receive federal funds under current law, but they don't have to be, and that could be changed tomorrow. Now, this is Justice Gorsuch's opinion in these uh, recent affirmative action cases. All I'm saying is because that's not a constitutional rule, it's okay. much easier to modify. Okay, all right, fair enough. And, and you wanna... know who's actually in agreement with me about some of this stuff? The Cato Institute on the right, because they believe in private freedom. And maybe not the Institute as a whole, but I promise you, I've talked to people who are important people in the Cato ecosystem, you know, people who have long-standing affiliations with connections to Cato, and they say, Kiel, actually, we th- we're, somewhat, we're sympathetic to this idea. I just want to say that this was my suggestion in the previous episode on this. Um, and he, most could think of in your this podcast is your suggestion <laughs> the whole but, the whole idea of it so of okay, course but but, but know, anyway sine qua non but anyway this this question of of disparate impact is very important in the kinds of in what we're talking about now um, mm-hmm. so um and and uh, and I want to get into it some more but Jeff has a, has a comment yeah I know we've gone on uh, for some time as is our I'd want like to get, 
Yeah, I'd like to get to uh, the issue of consequences, if I could. Sure. As I said on the last podcast, I've been doing quite a bit of research on this because I'm a trustee at Morehouse College, and I'm trying to help Morehouse College think through the Black Men's College in Atlanta, close to 160 years old, uh, the premier, uh, one of the premier uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, trying to help them think through what are going to be the consequences for them of the Supreme Court decision. As part of that research, and I'm just going to state this as a conclusion, if you'd like to know how I reached this conclusion, we can talk about that. I think that there will be a 25 to 35% decrease in the entering numbers of Black, Hispanic, and Native American students at the 100 most selective colleges in the country. Now, these schools educate collectively about 200 or or enter about 220,000 freshmen each year. There are about 2.5 million freshmen total entering college each year as first year, first time students. So these schools represent less than 10% of entering classes. Uh, Yet, sidebar comment, they're the object of 95% of the attention that higher education gets, and certainly in this case. Less than 20% of their enrollment currently is Black, Hispanic, or Native American. So call that about 40,000 people, 20% of uh, 200, 220,000. If 30% of the Black, Hispanic, and Native students are affected, then about 12,000 Black, Hispanic, or Native American students each year will lose their first-year places in these institutions And those places are necessarily going to be filled by people who are not Black, Hispanic, or Native American. Mm -hmm. It's a zero-sum game. That is, those places will be taken by students or by people of racial and ethnic heritage who are already uh, overrepresented in these 100 most selective institutions. Now, why does this matter? And I think that it's very easy to lose focus on this, or at least that's what I've seen taking place in the public commentary. This matters because, like it or not, this very small slice of higher education disproportionately feeds the leadership ranks of society. And the important thing about race versus class is that race is visible. This is most particularly true of students identifying as Black, given America's uh, historical construction of Blackness by the one-drop rule. But Hispanic visibility is also high in some combination of skin color, Hispanic language, family names, countries of origins, uh, et cetera. As one black Yale alum put it to me, if, socially speaking, you take a poor person and make them rich, no one's ever going to know that unless the individual makes a point of it somehow. But I am going to be black forever highly visible in whatever community or organizations I serve. So I, Jeff Brenzel, would argue that there are two great harms to this Supreme Court decision. The first is that as the corporations who filed amicus briefs, over 80 of them, uniformly testify, a diverse leadership makes better decisions and shows greater creativity And this will move leadership from deeply underrepresented to even more deeply underrepresented in virtually all the institutions uh, that are important uh, to American governance and society. 
The second is that Black and Hispanic and Native Americans will take a significant step backwards in visibility in the leadership of every kind of societal institution, also moving from deeply underrepresented to even more deeply underrepresented. I say this is not good for America. It's not good for the sense of citizenship and ownership that has historically deeply troubled this country. It sends the message that citizen and ownership and stakeholding just doesn't matter when it comes to race in a country in which it has always hugely mattered. Meanwhile, social class mobility, which many of the proponents or many of the anti-affirmative action opponents uh, proclaim to be their primary concern, social class mobility will be virtually completely unaffected by what happens in the most selective college colleges, whether because of what happens with minority enrollment or legacy admissions or anything else. Social class mobility in this country depends vastly on what takes place in primary ed, secondary ed, and the 90% of higher ed that is not selective. And here, the hyperattention on a small slice at the elite end of the spectrum, and I mean hyper-focused, this is where 95% of all media and political coverage comes, keeps us blind to the defunding of public education, the rancid de facto segregation, uh, racially in our country, the exceptional cost of education, the exceptional debt load that students take on, vast numbers of black, Hispanic, and lower income white students, about a million start community colleges every year of the 2.5 million total. A sadly neglected, underfunded, and abused system that we have been ignoring to our own great peril. In this Supreme Court decision, you might say, collectively speaking, uh, American society has aimed a cannon and scored a big hit on racial diversity on a small but productive and important ecosystem of leadership development to what I think is our own detriment as a, as a society and to no vast increase in addressing the real challenges in education and the real challenges in social mobility. Uh, I believe we're going to continue to ignore the only real hope in our country for restoring social mobility, which is the ma massively under-resourced system of public education, primary education, secondary, higher education, full of enormous inequities, which is subject to ongoing political attack and abuse. But, oh, yeah, we are going to give Harvard a whooping. Harvard is going to take it right on the chin. Hooray for America. We have finally done something uh, about the problems in education. Now, I'd like to just speak for one final moment about black families and HBCUs, because I'm, I'm deeply involved in the Morehouse College case. You have dozens of institutions with outstanding track records at life-changing, uh, disproportionately responsible for advanced and professional degrees, also badly underfunded. Morehouse is a small liberal arts college of about 2,500 students total, enrolls more black men each year than any other college in America, except a public institution in North Carolina, North Carolina A&M, which is another selective and highly successful HBCU. Morehouse's endowment is about $100 million, whereas the top predominantly white liberal arts colleges have endowments of 3 to $3.5 billion dollars. 
and uh, over 30 times that large, not to mention the behemoth uh, endowments at places at the national universities like Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. And Morehouse is trying to educate and support a student body that's 50% Pell Grant eligible versus 10 to 20% at the top white liberal arts colleges. In our summer retreat uh, in July, uh, the trustees were trying to think through the surge of applications we think we're going to see in the wake of the Supreme Court decision. How are we going to cope with extremely constrained resources and capacity to open up more doors for highly talented Black men who will feel the earthquake of the Supreme Court decision long after the rest of America goes entirely back to sleep, having been satisfied with the spanking either from the right or, if you will, from the left that's been delivered to Harvard University. This national public education system is a disgrace, and we insist on being blind to it and focusing our attention on dropping let's say, legacy admissions by two or three percentage points at Yale. We are so self-involved with institutions that actually do matter with regard to diversity in leadership positions in this country and absolutely have a tiny effect on social mobility, broadly speaking. We have an incredible blindness for what matters, and that's the point I wanted to make. Well, I want to, you know, thank you for, you know, sharing, you know, what what uh, you clearly feel passionately about there, Jeff. And it's very useful to have, uh, you know, your opinion, you know, sort of formulated in one bunch, you know, one, you know, in yeah, yeah. one uh, missive there. Now, of course, what you're making here is a is a uh, an argument about impact. It does, you know, this is uh, not necessarily an argument that the decision is wrong from a, you know, a legal point of view but you're not happy about it, you know, in terms of its impact. So, and for various reasons. Now, a few comments. Um, there's a couple of premises. Or, to- or, 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 Andy, the response to the decision. Mm-hmm. If the response to the decision is, you know, somehow you've got to fiddle at the edges with other admissions policies in the universities. Right. Um, A, you will miss the negative consequences mm-hmm for cohesion, citizenship, and ownership in this country with regard to the disadvantaged groups that are going to take a big step backwards, and B, you will not be affecting the hideous inequities that face primary, secondary, and higher public education and which get consistently ignored and cast aside. That's that's my point. Well, I think you know, it's, that's very interesting that a person like yourself who is, as I said, passionate about this and is sees a big impact, nevertheless, is saying, look, you're not just getting angry, you know, you're, you're looking at what to do about it. So, so right. for example, you're, you're not saying, okay, legacy admissions, you know, punch in the face, you know, instead, you're saying, okay, let's look at the education system as a whole. And of course, another person that's doing that today is Nicholas Kristoff, who has a column yes. in today's New York I Times. I thought Nicholas's column was the best thing I've read so far in the aftermath of the decision. To not entirely agree with you, he does take a shot at legacy admissions first. That's but, fine. Everybody can he, take a shot yeah, at legacy admissions. He, but, what I'm saying is, yeah, but, in terms of its impact on the country, yes. it's a firecracker. We have explosions going off in every other area. I'm not saying don't go after legacy admissions. Fine. Whatever happens with legacy admissions is going to happen. If that's the sum total of the attention that this Supreme Court decision gets, then uh, we are failing ourselves as a country. Right. 
Okay, I, I, so I understand your response. And that's now there's a couple of premises to your argument that I would like to uh, sure. ha- have you defend a little bit. Um, sure. Uh, first of all, you said that uh, that admissions of certain groups of minorities is going to drop by 35%. Um, I said 25 to 35%. 25 to 35%. That's, that, 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 that's yeah. my general estimate. Okay, so where'd you get that number? Well, that would take uh, a show. I've been spending about a year on this mm-hmm. now, actually, in the last six months, quite intensively. I've looked at the mitigation strategies uh, that institutions uh, may try to adopt or have, have been recommended to institutions, substitute social class for race, um, build pipeline programs, work with scholarship programs of various kinds, increase levels of outreach. Honestly, I've talked to probably 15 admissions deans at institutions of variety of kinds, people that I've known uh, you know, in the course of my own career. I haven't found one yet that believes uh, that these mitigation strategies are going to sustain the existing diversity in these colleges. And I think there's another factor that no one is talking about. Uh, but by the way, there's there's some baseline here from the Michigan and California cases. And this is, uh, this is my sense of what people are modeling as w- what's going to happen. I've been asked you, by reporters. I've been asked by others. Yeah. Uh, well, look, um, can't the institutions just kind of fudge this? Uh, can't they sort of just sort of scooch around it somehow? I think it's that, that it misunderstands the nature of the enterprise. In an admissions office, it isn't the dean sitting in, you know, inside a closed room after all the work has been done and saying, you live, you die, you live, you die, you live. What's going on is you've got a faculty committee on admissions, you have a trustee oversight of admissions, you have uh, big stakeholders and the provost, the president, the dean of the college, you have 25 admissions officers, you have to exchange an enormous amount of data, this this thing depends on institutional alignment uh, across a broad uh, variety of people. We have a faculty member at Yale who sits in on every admissions committee meeting, um, this process is visible and transparent and runs on data, you know, inside the organization. I think that this is going to be highly susceptible. That is, you're going to be scrutinized and not just by Ed Blum filing lawsuits against you, mm-hmm. but you're going to have internal scrutiny from people who uh, decide that this is a critically important issue to them. Let's say a disgruntled former admissions officer, uh, you know, who sees things differently than the institutional consensus. They all have tape recorders in their pockets. No dean is going to be able to train staff, calibrate reading, um, present to a faculty admissions committee, uh, present to the trustees, which I did at least once a year, if not twice a year, and be saying something in private where their public thing is, we're going to conform to the Supreme Court decision, but then in private, well, wink, wink, nod, nod, here's how we're really going to make these things happen. This process runs on data. The data is widely shared. There's all kinds of institutional engagement and stakeholders in the admissions office and lots of ways. I'm sure that the first person who pops up and says, to the Wall Street Journal or other similar publications, hey, you know, my institution says they're conforming to the Supreme Court decision. Let me play you a tape recording of what's actually said in the admissions committee room. 
let me give you 20 cases that were actually presented and where the essays were all about overcoming difficulties and challenges. But one race's essays were considered differently from the overcoming challenge, uh, you know, essays of another race. The project, like the entire process of admissions, is very susceptible to scrutiny. And it's not just Ed Blum filing a lawsuit and bringing in a bunch of social scientists to do the regression analysis. This is going to tear institutions apart internally. And I don't see any adequate understanding of that in the media environment. So you asked how I got to the 25 to 35%. I know what's being modeled on this. Uh, I know how the affirmative action process worked. And I see that the scrutiny is going to be severe and the institutions are going to have to adopt policies and calibrate people to policies that are really radically different than what they have been in the past. I don't think we're going to escape a 25 to 35% drop. I could be wrong, but I think it's going to be a significant uh, shift in the landscape and something at about that level. I think that's very useful information for our audience that that you just uh, threw out there that, as you mentioned, has not really been covered in the media. And I think, you know, the the last paragraphs of the uh, majority opinion, while you know, it could, at first blush, it can be read to say, here's what you can do. Mm-hmm. Okay. In fact, it's more of a warning of here's yes. what you'd better not do. And let me just read this, this paragraph for our audience. So this is Chief mm-hmm. Justice Roberts. He says, uh, as all parties agree, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise, then he is a site. But despite the dissent's assertion to the contrary, universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. Uh, dot, dot, right. dot. What cannot be done directly cannot be done indirectly. The Constitution right. deals with substance, not shadows. And the prohibition against racial discrimination is leveled at the thing, not the name and the site. A benefit yeah. to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination. Or a benefit to a student whose heritage or culture motivated him or her to assume a leadership role or attain a particular goal must be tied to that student's unique ability to contribute to the university. In other words, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. Many universities have for too long done just the opposite, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, there, so there you go. So, so he's saying, yeah, you can do this, but that's, you know, but you can only I do it in this the, way. You know, bottom line, I think that the chilling effect is going to be very substantial, and we're already seeing it be extended. For instance, can you run summer programs that are geared toward supporting and enriching the experience of underrepresented minority students? There are already civil actions being filed with the, this has been going on for three or four years. Lots of complaints that uh, you can't run summer camps for girls in computer programming. You can't operate a program that's targeted at certain racial classifications 
uh, it must be open to everyone and it must in fact be open to everyone and not sotto voce closed you know or 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 people excluded the scholarship programs and the financial aid money i think there's a whole wave of things coming that we haven't even seen yet and this thomas jefferson case is one of those uh, which we haven't gotten around to discussing that's on the horizon. So anyway, you asked me how I got to 25 to 35%. It's based on a long experience of how this works, of how the many factors are taken into account together, and what I think is going to be a tremendous chilling effect of the Supreme Court ruling and the scrutiny that the institutions are going to have, not just externally, but internally. Well, I think that's, you know, that this chilling effect is, is a good point. I mean, uh, but of course, you know, the fact that there are going to be lawsuits filed is not the same thing as having, you know, prohibition against it. Um, you you know, you could win a lawsuit, you could lose a lawsuit, and it could be clarified over time. Um, and no doubt. No, it's, I, I actually think that the lawsuit issue is not going to be the predominant issue. I, I think that the issue is going to be the kinds of institutions these are, the kind of people I know who occupy them. They aren't going to say one thing in public and do something entirely different in private. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, they're just not that kind of people. All the statements that you're seeing from all the college presidents is we will, of course, conform to the Supreme Court decision. We are also going to do everything we can to maintain the diversity, which we feel has a high educational value. I think they they can uh, they can freely make both of those statements. But to the extent that they're going to conform to this Supreme Court decision, the entire institutional ecology will have to shift in terms of the way the admission process works and the way it interacts with faculty, with provosts, with admissions officers and admissions teams, with alumni interviewers, an entire system that depends on alignment around calibration issues as to what we're looking for, you know, in an application. I just don't see much public recognition of what that involves or how vulnerable it is to internal issues and uh, internal exposures. Yeah, I think there's a sort of a public uh, oversimplification of the admissions process. And it, it yeah. it's almost a conspiracy theory uh, approach to it that, well, this right. is you know, they're going to find a way to do what they want to do no matter what, you know. Right. So, okay, well, this was this is great. I mean, there's a lot more to talk about um, about this stuff, but I think, you know, uh, I'm glad that we were able to hit on areas of your particular expertise here today. Um, and uh, and Akil and I will be back to analyze some more of the, you know, the legal stuff, uh, which there's quite a bit of still, although I think there was some very useful things here today uh, on that, uh, in that, category as well. Akil, any closing remarks from you on this? It's a long episode at the risk of extending. Let me try to sum up and look for one. We're going to have at least one more episode on this issue, but let me just pull together five or six issues about what we have talked about and, and what we need to talk about going forward. One, the numbers that Jeff identified about the impact of this are sobering, and they are consistent with what we talked about, Andy, you and I, before, that this is affirmative action is a big program. It's not a wee little tip. And if it were a wee little tip, we wouldn't be talking about these numbers. And so it's not like oboe, you know, oboe players or something, because that wouldn't involve the ordering of, of the entire system, which is what Jeff is is actually saying is in the process of happening. A second issue 
is we didn't talk about the military, and that might be different. And it might be different in part because there are certain domains where bottom line numbers may be particularly important when it comes to voting. That was actually a case about voting numbers and proportionality in uh, the Allen against Milligan case in Alabama when it comes to actually jury representation or representation in the House of Representatives or state legislature or in the military. They're actually... Uh, there are different domains, and actually some domains maybe are supposed to be proportionate, and you can um, do more to achieve bottom line proportionality. We haven't talked about that issue. On the legal questions, here's what I said. When it comes to public universities, they can't discriminate against Blacks, and now it turns out that they can't sort of do much discrimination in favor of Blacks. That's That's where we are now. But... When it comes to disparate impact, you can't have formally race-neutral rules that are designed to punish an historic outgroup, but you are allowed, that's Washington versus Davis, if you are adopting a rule in order to hurt blacks, that's actually unconstitutional. But if you're adopting a colorblind, a color-neutral rule, maybe in order to promote certain underrepresented groups, that remains legal today. That's the Thomas Jefferson case. And we'll have to talk about that because there is an asymmetry there that we're going to need to talk about. Final and maybe the biggest point, private universities. So here's what Jeff said. He talked about a private college that's an historically black private college, private university, Morehouse. Today, we, and, we, and, and, and Morehouse is an heroic institution, but imagine we had a private school that we said, we're, oh, we're in a store private an historically white college, historically white university. Well, I don't think we feel the same way about that. Here's my point. Going forward, it may very well be the case that we should rethink the rules of private education and free up our private institutions, which Jeff have told us, very, very important in this ecosystem, to be charitable. And and maybe because The Constitution is about the government and law. Maybe actually, even if Jeff doesn't love it, when it comes to public institutions, the government, because color consciousness has a bad history, we have now uh, like a per se rule, kind of like Miranda. You know, you can't do it without Mirandizing people. You um, you can't interrogate them at the police station. You can't take race into account if you're a public university. That's where the court is coming from. Private institutions might be very different. Maybe we should rethink our rules for charitable institutions. I I think a charitable institution, very wealthy and powerful, that says we're a charity for the overdogs of the world, for the the white people, the rich people. I would say, well, that's fine, but that's not really charitable. Um, And why should my tax dollars go to subsidize that in any way? But if a charity says we're about trying to create a more equal even society, we're about social mobility, we're about integration, we're about actually addressing some of the, the, the sins of the past. As a private institution, we are charitable and we want to act, focus our attention on some of the groups that have historically been underrepresented. Oh, maybe we should allow more of that going forward. That will require not a constitutional amendment, but merely a change of statute. And that will be very interesting to think about going forward, whether we want to free up charitable institutions to pick up, take a part of the slack 
that will be created because of the very sobering numbers that, that Jeff is predicting across the, the board. So th- those are some of the things, Andy, we are going to need to talk about in a future episode. Yep. Military academies, um, things like the, the Thomas Jefferson School um, case, which are disparate impact cases, you know, things like, uh, you know, race-based scholarships, you know, and, and things like that. Um, so there's private education generally. One final thing, since we, you know, have been talking in a future episode, I'll talk a little bit about my own experience as a head, a faculty head of admissions at the law school. And we do things somewhat differently. We're dealing with older students. They're not living at home. The Yale Law School, by the way, Andy, has no legacy preference at all. I do think legacy preference, especially in graduate professional schools, might be different than colleges in all sorts of ways. And Andy, we'll talk about that in future episodes. Jeff Brenzel. Thank you so much. And your position at Morehouse also very, uh, very relevant to all this discussion. So thank you for bringing that in. So, you know, our audience. Thanks thanks for the opportunity to to talk with you guys. I think this is uh, really super important stuff, and I'm glad you're on it. Thank you very much. And so we'll be back next week with another episode of America's Constitution. Thank you.